Hello and welcome back to the official Sasta podcast with me, Harry Stebbings, at hstebbings on Snapchat. And my word, what an incredible time we had last week at Sasta Annual. I want to say a huge thank you to Jason and everyone at Team Sasta for all they did to put on the world's best SAS conference. Truly exceptional, and we hope you enjoyed it. However, to the show today, and I'm delighted to be back with the Sasta podcast this week following our week break for the event. To celebrate the return, we have an expert of the enterprise space joining us today. So joining me in the hot seat, I'm delighted to welcome Jonathan Lear. Now, Jonathan is the co founder and managing director of Workbench, where he focuses on early stage enterprise technology investments in areas including big data analytics, machine learning, data defined security, and more. Prior to Workbench, John founded the New York Enterprise Technology Meetup in January 2012 and organizes monthly meetups of the 5,000 plus person group as a way to promote collaboration for the enterprise tech ecosystem in New York. John has also worked at Morgan Stanley on the office of the CIO team in IT. In that capacity, he partnered with internal technology technology clients to facilitate the selection and onboarding of emerging technology vendors. He's also written about enterprise technology trends for publications such as the Wall Street Journal, CIO Journal, and TechCrunch. I also want to say a huge thank you to David Politis at BetterCloud for the intro to Jonathan today, without which this episode would not have been possible. However, before we dive into the show today, Algolia is the robust search API that allows developers to integrate lightning-fast, typo-tolerant search into their SaaS product. Out of the box, Algolia offers developers a powerful platform for building great search experiences. By owning the entire stack from engine to server, Algolia free up development teams to focus on adding intuitive search that delights users. This is perfect for existing search teams looking to spend less time on maintenance and infrastructure management and more time on user experience. For small SaaS teams, Algolia is a perfect investment on top of your existing stack that requires no specialist engineers. And you can learn more about how Algolia helps SaaS scale search and get started on their 14-day free trial at algolia.com forward slash Sasta podcast. However, enough from me, so I'm now delighted to hand over to Jonathan Lear, co-founder and managing director at Workbench. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. John, it's absolutely brilliant to have you on the show today. A huge thanks to David Politis at Better Cloud for the intro, but thank you so much for joining me today, John. Of course, the pleasure is all mine. I've been a long-time listener, and it's just such an honor to be on the show today. Well, that's very kind of you. But I'd love to start today with a, with a two- to three-minute bio of you and how you made your way into the wonderful world of enterprise investing. For sure. And that's really why I love this podcast, because it gives people a chance to share a bit of their story. My break into investing was a little bit atypical. I actually, before Workbench, was in Morgan Stanley's office of the CIO in technology. And it's important to note, I actually wasn't a banker. I was an IT guy with a really, really fun role. My job was to meet hundreds of startups a year backed by top-tier VCs from the West Coast, every name that you can imagine. And really, our line, our purpose was to be the first line of defense for the firm and figure out, okay, which of these startups that we're meeting with that have amazing stories, tremendous backers, align with pain points we have internally. And I got to do that day in, day out, and get a sense across any area in SaaS and enterprise investing that you can imagine. I was meeting some of the leading companies there. And I saw this massive opportunity where, in New York, we actually had a very vibrant community for meetups and informal tech gatherings really focused on consumer. But this is back 2010, 2011 timeframe before enterprise was sexy. And there was actually no community to bring folks together outside of the office and get a little bit of a dose of what's cool and interesting and upcoming in tech that's not your standard webinar, for instance, or a sales guy beating down your door. So similar to what you did in a way with growing your podcast series, I actually started the enterprise tech meetup seeing this gap in the market. And it's pretty funny because I would actually go home, spend my nights and weekends toiling away, figuring out 
how can I grow this community? In New York, we have 52 of the Fortune 500 based here. We have a ton of enterprise technologists. We have a lot of investors. How can you get them together? And I did the Paul Graham move of doing things that don't scale. So I was literally crawling LinkedIn groups looking for enterprise themes where I could post messages to say, hey, we're starting this meetup group. Come join. Aaron Levy was a huge TechCrunch guest post blogger, really trying to rally the community around the opportunity ahead. Again, it sounds kind of basic and obvious now, but back 2011, it wasn't a sure thing. And really the tipping point, I launched the group in January 2012. Once Facebook's IPO kind of tumbled a little bit in the early days in the public markets and Workday in August 2012 had a tremendous IPO, kind of the market lit up and said, whoa, enterprise is actually a thing. And I was able to have this monthly meetup grow into a group with thousands of members, 150 regulars across, as we like to say, suits and hoodies, meaning both corporate buyers as well as startups. And this is the cool part. This was just a passion project of mine and my nights and weekends outside of my Morgan Stanley role. But because of all this activity and the momentum and really building this community together for enterprise in the city, when the global printing company, R. Donnelly, had a vision to grow a community and fund in New York, I was able to get connected by numerous people because of this meetup and this activity. And this is an amazing connection that would have never happened had it not been for this pet project of mine. And here I am today, so grateful for this opportunity to lead Workbench with my co-founder, Jadesh. Absolutely. No, and I also love the, I call it the platformification of VC. It's elements of yours and kind of the Jason Lemkins of the world who, who have a surround platform around the venture fund that they operate with. So I'm a massive fan of that. So please do accept my support. It's a, a brilliant to have another platform VC on the show. But I do want to start with something that you've said before. And as many of the listeners know, I'm a stalker. So you've said, <laughs> be- <laughs> you've said before that enterprise tech is like chess. So talk to me about this. And what are the rules to play by then? I'd love to. So to finish that thought, it's enterprise tech to me is like chess, whereas consumers like buying a lottery ticket. So to simplify this a bit from a VC standpoint, there's a few key constituents in that overall enterprise landscape. So there's Fortune 1000 buyers, there's incumbent vendors, there's startups, and there's investors. I'm leaving off groups like consultants, integration firms, because it's not important to the overall point I'm making. And, and if we dig in here around the rules, at a very basic level, Fortune 1000 companies have two things. They have pain points for both business and IT needs, and they have budget dollars associated with them. If you throw in the people that work at these Fortune 1000 companies, people are the decision makers who control the budgets, and there's the timing element as to when the project will get funded. And the thing that always surprised me during my Morgan Stanley days when I'd speak with VCs on a daily basis is how few really dug in to understand the current pain points and where budget dollars would go to 12 to 18 months out. And because VC is such a tough business as is, I always view de-risking upfront large market opportunities by speaking to enough Fortune 1000 companies and the time timing element of investing by getting a sense of where budget dollars would be allocated and when for a particular pain point, those two things always made rational sense to me. And the difficulty lies in being able to have enough tentacles into these line of business heads within these Fortune 1000 companies to make your insights enough of a sample size to be meaningful and not indicative of just a few companies' needs. Can I ask, is, which, there, is there also transparency though? If you do communicate with them, if you do get to that stage, which many don't, of communicating with the with the CIOs or with the but you know decision makers, is there a transparent relationship where they'll say we have X amount of dollars for X amount of time or is it relatively opaque? So here's where it gets challenging and where the strategy comes in. It for the most part is opaque. I know that a lot of folks today like to think that you can automate your way to sales success. But when you're going into Fortune 1000 accounts, it's still a people driven business, both from the startup side as well as from the VC side. So it's really about, in our opinion, having very deep relationships with numerous people. So it goes beyond the CIO, the CC 
so and really understanding who's the tier down, who's two tiers down from that, who are actually the key decision makers today. Now, granted, that means it's a ton more work because within one company, let's say Morgan Stanley, where I used to work, you need to know 10, 20, 30 people where in the past you could maybe get by on just knowing one. So it's about having relationships and developing authentic ones so that people candidly open up knowing that you have their best interest in mind and it's not just a transactional relationship where it's, hey, here's my pain point. I know you're going to stuff a vendor down my face, a startup that you just invested in. It's more about let's have a thoughtful conversation around how do you see the world going? Where are your pain points? What's our perspective as Workbench and other VCs for them to share their thoughts and making it more of a long-term relationship and conversation there. Can I ask, how can startups look to build such scalable relationships? As you said, this isn't one or two people. It's the, the tier beneath the CSO and the CIO. Is, you know, is it possible to build such scalable relationships when also there's so many companies? So I think that's actually a huge challenge for early go-to-market companies. And it's not something that can be done by one or two people. I think that the burden, so to speak, is actually shared around the table. So as Jason Lemkin always says, founders, before they hire a VP of sales, need to be able to get, what is it, first 10 customers? Absolutely. And be able to really show the key there, I think, is grit. Can you navigate? Can you actually demonstrate? You're the one who has the vision. You're the biggest evangelist for your own product. This is your baby, so to speak. Can these men and women founders hustle and figure it out? So maybe they use a second or third degree connection to get an introduction to one person. If they're not the right decision maker? Can they bounce around a little bit? Can they figure out how to get through? Because once they've done that, and then once they've raised capital, that's actually something that our opinion, VCs should be extremely helpful with. Again, similar to what Jason does with Saster and a lot of other investors are starting to really do with their platform teams, which is help not just with introductions, but help navigate who should you be speaking to when and why. Because otherwise, it's easy to get lost in email ping pong. You have a call scheduled two months from now. It ends up not being the right person. And look, every day as a startup founder, your burn is ticking and you need to optimize to really demonstrate success and product market fit. So it is difficult, but that's really the challenge for an early company and where their investors can help out as well. Speaking of difficult as well, it's also potentially more challenging in the rise of kind of the bottoms up decision making process that we've seen proliferate a lot of enterprise software buying recently in recent years. I'm intrigued when you were at Morgan Stanley, did you see the rise of bottoms up decision making in terms of enterprise buying software? So I, I'm definitely in line with bottoms up decision making because I, the CIO, again, is not the ultimate decision maker anymore. And uh, this gives opportunity for startups like Atlassian has demonstrated bottoms up, massive success, and they're always the poster child. I actually like to posit something else, though, that it's about middle up selling or middle down, depending on how you want to kind of view it, which is you need the buy-in from that line of business executive. That's not going to be the CIO. It might not be the direct report, but it could be the managing director or the VP of engineering in charge of a specific functional area where they're tasked with one of their five pain points on their whiteboard that they have to solve this year is problem X and you're going after it. And I think that when we look at things like developer solutions, if you can develop a critical mass with the bottoms up developer community, that helps so much to really create momentum for that decision maker to get on your side. But again, it's the opportunity for companies here because before it was that one constraint point, the CIO that's getting wined and dined by the IBMs and the MCs of the world. And as a small company, the challenge was how can you get on their radar and then demonstrate success and get them to trust you with their, their budget dollars and solving their pain point. So for now, because it's more distributed in terms of decision-making and evaluating, it is harder to find the right person. But once you get there, you can get their attention more easily if you can demonstrate value. Can I ask, when you saw the plethora of startups pitching you when you were at Morgan Stanley, did you 
gain a sense of validity when you saw that they were venture funded and then backed by different venture funds? Or was that not an aspect of your mentality when buying the software? So it's a huge benefit. When we, all the banks, because of regulations, have to go through financial due diligence processes with all of their vendors, big and small. And it's funny because I've actually had this, this debate before with people, even on the banking side of the house at the firm, that a lot of folks don't realize that banks tend to be the largest and earliest adopters of enterprise software. A large proportion of our vendors at Morgan Stanley were startups that tapped into our multi-billion dollars of budget. And the really interesting opportunity here is when we evaluated a Series A company, that maybe if it offers a database or a sales solution or a big data tech back in the day, they're not going to take away all share and solve all of our problems. But there were pain points that had budgets to the effect of hundreds of thousand dollars, even small multi-million dollar accounts. And when you're evaluating a company with limited customers and you can't even look at the P&L and balance sheet too much to get a sense of their future, to answer your question directly, this is where VC funding comes in. Because if you know that they're backed by a top tier VC, there's a sign that really that stamp of approval, a sign of legitimacy. Then to take it further, you would look at things like how much burn do they have relative to cash on hand? If they've got 12, 15 months of cash and a strong backer that you know will support them if they're not able to raise their next round with ease, it really gave comfort to us when we were evaluating these startups and enabled a lot of really sophisticated purchase decisions that maybe slower buying industries, things like manufacturing, wouldn't have been able to take that leap of faith to work with the startup on. We spoke there about kind of the, the benefits of the VC stamp on a startup for potentially security reasons in terms of financing. I'm intrigued to discuss slightly your background and the move into VC, going from corporate IT to enterprise investing, uh, because you've said before uh, about it being competitive and differentiated background, having the corporate IT. Why do you believe this over potentially the traditional banking routes that we see much of today in venture? Sure. So I think it comes down to really play back on my uh, chess analogy. The key is really understanding the corporate pain points at scale. If it's about building that trust, if it's about having those deep tentacles within the network, if it's about understanding not just the pain points and the use cases, but also what drives decision making in large companies. For my past role, having actually been involved in all those conversations and working with all the different executives internally who had the budget dollars associated with them, you can't compare that to someone on the financial side who, of course, is doing transaction and has amazing skills. But it's our perspective here that that's better suited for growth investing when there's financials to model out and understand growth and future potential for a company. For us in really SaaS and enterprise investing, when you're looking at a Series A company, it's really more about the future potential than being able to understand what's their financial structure today. How does the company look from a health perspective? So having that, really, our whole team comes from this background. My co-founder, Jess, is from Cisco. Colleagues on our team are from Bank of America's office of the CIO, ex Forrester security analysts from Viacom. And it's really about having that customer empathy is probably a nice, succinct way to say it, where number one, it helps us when we build our network and engage with corporates that we're the XIT people in the room. So we understand them. We used to be in those shoes and we can be more authentic with them. And then just from an understanding perspective, being able to really dig in several layers beneath the surface and understand, all right, you're touting AI or machine learning or security software. Hey, we, we've been down this road before. Let's actually see what's under the hood. Let's actually see what your reasoning is and the rationale is beyond it being whiz bang tech potentially. How are you actually going to get that budget dollar to the, and these big corporates to sell to you. Talking about getting that big budget dollar and the big corporates to sell to you, I do have an interesting question which I always think of and I'd love your thoughts on. It's the investment or not the investment, but the, the buying decision-making process at large corporates and what that buying decision-making process looks like uh, and kind of correlated to that how the sales cycle is linked. The one easy piece of advice here is for startups if there's someone with an innovation title 95% of the time they 
do not have any influence on the buying process and they're not tied into internal needs. So my quick advice is stay away and find someone else because again, you don't want to waste your time when that net burn clock is ticking. But thinking broadly around how that decision-making process works, again, with this focus on Fortune 1000 companies, it's often not one person. It's often part of a process where if there's a legacy vendor or an incumbent that's getting ripped out, there's going to be other people that you're competing with, both fellow startups as well as bigger companies. So it's not something where you're going to make one phone call and then they're going to use their credit card and sign up for most of the cases within the Fortune 1000. So the way it works is really building that relationship. It's about having, especially for your first 10, 20, even 25 customers, the CEO, and if he or she is not technical, one of the technical co-founders in the room to sell. I remember back at Morgan Stanley in, this must have been 2010 or 2011, Aaron Levy was there pitching box to our executives around collaboration for a use case. He didn't send just a sales guy. He was in the room talking about the vision. So again, because so much of it is about trust, so much of it is around helping them check the boxes on their end around, okay, there's going to be security needs we need to understand. There's going to be scalability things within the product architecture we need to understand. There's the understanding and just mapping of what are your features and how does that align with what we need internally. And those features came from five, seven potentially different people all putting in their feature requests and getting them prioritized. So it's a very complicated machine, but if founders and and their teams put their best foot forward and really do white glove service, especially for their early few Fortune 1000 accounts, there's huge money to be made and you have very sticky customers potential through these interactions. And last question before we dive into the quick fire, you spoke about kind of the Fortune 1000s there. Do you have to start at the very small level or can you immediately launch with uh, the aim of getting those customers? Do you have to have a gradual scaling process? So candidly, it can go both ways and it uh, each one needs a different strategy. One of our com- portfolio companies, Dialpad, which is the maker of Uber Conference as well as Enterprise. Craig Walker. I literally emailed him five minutes before this interview. <laughs> <laughs> so I love Craig and you should definitely make sure to sync up with him. I've got so him on the show. <laughs> for sure. That's a great example where they actually started out with Uber Conference and this is just a phenomenal conference service that has thousands and thousands of customers. But the cool part is over the last, I think, 18 months or so, when they've been able to land massive enterprise accounts, rip and replace guys like Cisco and Avaya, get rid of on-prem PBX, and have this true enterprise-grade service. Now, think about it. If you're a big company, your phone, you can't just be trusting to anybody. So they had to build up trust first and really battle hard in the infrastructure to enable all of the telephone service to go in the cloud. But if you compare that to one of our other companies, vArmor or Tamer, vArmor being in the cloud infrastructure security space or tamer and data unification, both of these companies actually started at the high end of the market, targeting folks like banks and big healthcare and big industrial. The reason being that it's such, they spent really a couple years heads down just building the software. It's so robust in its feature set and they they solve such massive pain points that to really get the value both from the customer side and also be able to charge the amount the large ACVs do for this kind of feature and product, going after the high end works nicely and then you can go down market in the future. No, that makes perfect sense. Uh, but I do want to dive into a quick fire round, which we call the 60-second Sasta. So 60 seconds per answer. How does that sound? Perfect. So let's start with greenfield opportunities for you in enterprise technology. Greenfield opportunity. I would have to say Giphy and not thinking about that, a fun meme and GIF website, but actually around, it's an acronym that stands for Google Infrastructure for Everyone Else. You and I were talking about uh, Cockroach Labs before and another company of ours, CoreOS. And these demonstrate really the capabilities that are coming out of web scale giants like Google, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, etc. that this technology that they've developed in-house actually now is solving pain points that even Wall Street, Big Pharma Media hasn't even had solutions for. So that's a huge opportunity for 
these solutions to solve enterprise-grade problems and a big focus for us in investment. What do you know now that you wish you'd known when you started Workbench? I'd say it's really the importance of working with good people. As a three-and-a-half-year-old venture fund, it was kind of in the early days. We always knew and you hear you need to work with good people, no assholes. But just from now actually being in the business and seeing, yes, there's, of course, important things around the team, the product, the market opportunity, timing, and things like that. In the early days, I would say I'd be a little bit more anxious when one of the only red flags was that the person may be an asshole. But now having a lot more confidence in knowing, look, even the most successful enterprise startups are not a straight line up and to the right. There's going to be challenges. And it's really how do you overcome those tough times and have that grit and be a good person along the way. So we will never go after those Steve Jobs asshole founders. And we have a lot more confidence today than when we started in really only working with good people because we know it leads to the best financial outcomes in the long run. Why is New York better than San Francisco to start an enterprise company today? I love that one. And that is why we're built here in New York. We have the highest customer concentration of anywhere in the world. We have 52 of the Fortune 500. And as you can tell from what I've been talking about with buying processes and the way to sell into the Fortune 1000, it's an in-person driven business. You can't do that over the phone. Therefore, all enterprise roads lead to New York. Whether you're West Coast companies, whether you're even companies that we work with from the UK and Israel, all of the budget dollars are concentrated here. Banks alone are $62 billion, And then you throw in insurance companies, media, healthcare, fashion, advertising, etc. It's all here. So for you in the early days and to our earlier discussion around how it's hard for a founder to really navigate and build up those first 10 customers, imagine doing it in New York where there's a subway right away, where you can meet them at a meetup, where before you're coming in for a sell, you can actually develop a real relationship with them and understand their pain points more naturally. It just gives a tremendous competitive advantage compared to San Francisco. And then what's your favorite SaaS reading material? When it comes in, what's the one that you always kind of gravitate to and take the time out to read? That's that's an easy one. Uh, of course, Jason Lemkin and Saster, I mean, is hands down the gold standard. I can't tell you how many times uh, Jason was here visiting a year ago and he spoke at the Enterprise Tech Meetup. He gave his uh, keynote on how to how and when to hire your first VP of sales. If you knew how often I send that video out to people and the associated blog post, instead of me trying to ramble and not do his post justice, people are shocked and amazed when they've never heard of Jason before and then obviously instantly get hooked. The one plug I'll also throw in that's a bit self-serving is, of course, our Enterprise Weekly Newsletter that my colleague Mickey curates. We have 15,000 subscribers and it curates really the top enterprise news from both a startup and corporate perspective, as well as fundings. And it's read by people across the country, which we're really proud of. And, and we'll make sure to add both of those to, to the site and the links uh, beneath. So not why people can subscribe from there. But I do want to, moving okay. out of the quick fire, I do want to finish on, on a few technical questions. So first, before we dive into a scaling question I'm dying to ask you, just to clarify the scene, uh, there's always an interesting discussion on kind of semantics. So in terms of what's the difference between enterprise software and traditional B2B SaaS? So I wouldn't say much so much it's a difference as opposed to SaaS being a delivery model. B2B SaaS, you can either target enterprise being the Fortune 1000 or small medium businesses. And it's really about just understanding which do you want to go after first, because I would posit that if you try to do both in tandem, you're going to get lost and it's too much to, to handle at once. Mm-hmm, absolutely. So now that's identified, with regards to the metrics themselves that define them, how do you view initial product traction when you're investing at the stage that you are for enterprise companies? What does this really kind of look like? 
So this is really where the nuance and tying back in that chess point above really comes to fruition here. And this is why I think our backgrounds are well suited. I think that in the early days of enterprise go to market, it's very difficult to look at metrics. Oftentimes when we're investing in a series A company, depending on the industry, they may have only one big customer that's just finished a POC with a big bank or with a big uh, media company. So it's not like you can look at things like MRR, CAC, LTV for these type companies. Now, certain areas where we do invest within the future of work and HR kind of technologies. With a Series A raise, you'll expect a little bit more traction and there is more meaningful metrics. But on the whole, if you look at areas like enterprise software for data center infrastructure, deep security technology, machine learning, a lot of times there aren't metrics and it's really understanding, again, mapping it to the pain points, mapping it to how big does this market get? Is this the right team solving it? How big is the problem? And it's it's metrics light in certain ways from a company perspective. And then I do want to finish today on, on talking of the customers. What are the challenges challenges then of doing, say, a single 5,000-seat deployment versus growing to 5,000 users? And what does that really mean for enterprise-grade scalability to you? So if we look, it's it's two very different models, and it's really fit for two very different companies. If we start with the latter, where I think you mentioned 5,000 users, that's really a great example of if you're a user-driven model targeting a developer tool or a sales organization, if you can try to get that credit card swipe and get some sort of virality and network effects going internally, where one team's using it, maybe a team of 10, then 50, and then a few hundred. As long as your product's delivering on the functionality and features you promise, you can over time grow. And and that's really a traditional kind of SaaS operation right there. If we look at a single 5,000 seat deployment, for most companies, that's actually going to be really where you need to bring in an enterprise sales rep. Depending on the area of focus, whether it's something more IT or more business facing, the speed at which you can transact will be different. The requirements around security and functionality will be different. And if we think about our example before with Dialpad versus VRM and Tamer, it's both are just different go-to-markets and different ways that you think about things like R&D and functionality and how soon you have to worry about security and other functionality that may not be as important early days if you're taking a more per-user approach. Okay, so putting it out there, I have a much bigger preference towards the single 5,000-seat deployment. I gain a lot more comfort from the security and the the relative ease of customer acquisition compared to the singular growing to 5,000 users. With that in mind, which would you say you lean towards more in terms of just natural inclination? Oh, hands down, it's about the 5,000 seat deployment. Oh, good. For us, they tend to uh, totally align with you. They tend to be stickier. It's, of course, harder in many ways to go than per seat. But once you get them, it's a big account and you can build off it. You can upsell internally. You can then leverage that account to grow into new accounts by having that as a reference customer. And for us, we just think that there tend to be such greenfield opportunities right now for the enterprises, these legacy incumbents, the IBMs, EMCs of the world. I'm still talking about them because they still control so many billions of dollars of budget that should be going to SaaS companies, to these enterprise upstarts. And there's huge opportunity here. So for us, what's exciting is there's an opportunity here. If you play the game right, you have the right product. And if you can have VCs that are actually really helpful and thoughtful around navigating the enterprise, bringing their corporate network to bear, which I think candidly is our number one value add and where we spend a ton of our time with our companies. If you can get them in front of the right people, help back channel, make that contract happen, you're really de-risking it for them and amplifying their chances of success. Well, John, I I can't emphasize enough how much I've enjoyed chatting to you today. As you can tell from me, completely not sticking to the schedule. But thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. I really appreciate it.
Again, I want to say a huge thank you to Jonathan for giving up his time today to come on the official Sasta podcast. I so enjoyed our chat today and really learned so much from the conversation, so a huge thanks to him for that. And also a big hand to David Politis at Better Cloud for the introduction, without which the episode would not have been possible. As always, you can follow me on Snapchat at hstebbings with two Bs, and you can follow Jason Lempkin on Snapchat at jlempkin. But before we leave you today, now Algolia is the robust search API that allows developers to integrate lightning-fast typo-tolerant search into their SaaS product. Out of the box, Algolia offers developers a powerful platform for building great search experiences by owning the entire stack from engine to server. Algolia free up development teams to focus on adding intuitive search that delights users. This is perfect for existing search teams looking to spend less time on maintenance and infrastructure management and more time on user experience. And for smaller SaaS teams, Algolia is a great investment on top of your existing stack that requires no specialist engineers. And you can learn more about how Algolia helps SaaS scale search and get started on their full day free trial at algolia.com forward slash sasta podcast as always we so appreciate all your support and look forward to bringing you friday's episode